Let's pray. Father, we turn to your word and you speak to us through it. Father, your word is eternal, it is abiding, it is truth. Father, as we seek to explain your word in human words, there's going to be stuff that is unworthy of you. So, our Father, we pray that you just blow that away, that the stuff, our Father God, that reflects your truth and helps us to understand what you say better. Father God, may those things hold fast to our hearts and train us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen. The story is told of a patient who returned to his doctor to hear the results of some tests. The doctor says to him, well, there's the good news and there's the bad news. I'll tell you the good news first. The tests indicate that you've got a fortnight to live. The bad news is that the fortnight began a week ago. As we start to read the letter to Romans, it seems that God's message to us is just like that. Even the supposedly good news, the gospel that, that Paul is keen and longing to share with the, uh, with the Romans, when we start that, it seems that it's taken up with bad news. You know, we can see from uh, early on in that chapter that Paul is chafing at the bit. He says that he's longing to see these people, to impart to them some spiritual gift in verse 12. He's longing to preach the good news to the folk at Rome. Yet no sooner does he begin to unpack the good news, beginning at verse 18, and what do we find? We don't find good news. No, the message that he then speaks to us, the message that John had just read, is about as welcome as a, a midnight stroll through a piranha-infested swamp. We need to take our kid gloves off here. We need to leave aside our, our sweet Sunday morning joy. We need to take off our Christian rose-coloured glasses and we need to be able to see this passage of Romans 1, verses 18 onwards, for what it really is. For this passage is, quite frankly, the sewer of the Scriptures. These verses describe the stinking cesspool of humanity in all its filth and its ugliness. It's, it's like a prostitute caught naked in her shameless vice. Paul exposes in this passage the putrid nature of men without God. Paul, I think, clearly intends to shock the church at Rome. He intends to shock these people who are Christians now, but only a, probably a handful of years ago at the most, were pagan. Yes, these people now confess Christ as Lord, yet they still live within this capital city of the greatest empire that the world had ever known up to that point. An empire and a city that was, that was draped with all the spoils of global conquest. Daily they could gaze upon the architectural and technological advances of the era. They were being immersed each day in a sophisticated, educated, refined society. And so were these Christians at Rome immune to the temptations to believe the lie that subtly flowed from all of this veneer that swamped them every day. To believe the lie that, that man, man isn't so bad after all. 
that man really does have the, the ability to lift himself up, that man really is glorious in and of himself. Just, just look at all the marble statues around them, the great colonnades and the, and the, and the artefacts that were around. And it's into this sort of society marked with self-glorification that Paul writes to the church and he writes at the very start of his letter and blasts away this veneer. He rips the cover from the manhole and he uncorks the filth of man and it spews across the pages of God's word here. And he shocks them with the stark reality that this is what their world is like. Yet, we can't pass this off as, well, that was the decadence of Rome back then. God's word is abiding and his word continues to confront us in our day and age as well. For is our world all that much different? We still live in a world where man glorifies himself, where man takes pride in his ways and struts his abilities to solve all things. Oh, some might claim that the, that the golden age is past where we once viewed man as noble, worthy to be exalted. But even now as we live in a, in a world of political frustration where, where politicians and leaders are thrown regularly onto the scrap heap, where does society turn to? But to a new way of flawed leaders with equally inept mantras. And so it is that decade, century, millennium after millennium, society blindly rearranges the chairs on the Titanic, pinning its hope here, there, everywhere, only to find that all are fundamentally flawed. Yet we endure the cycle time and again of, of hope and frustration, bitterness, renewed hope and frustration. And so it goes on. Why? Because collectively, we trust in men. Because we don't see man in the technicolour reality as God does. Because the truth, as God portrays us, is an affront to us, even as believers. Because if what God says about man in these verses is truly true, then the plight of each person Living without God is truly desperate. And as believers, we fail to take too seriously this destiny. In verse 16 of Romans 1, you'll see it there, Paul says, he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of the good news. And in verse 17, he writes that in the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. There is the good news. There is a righteousness that God is revealing from heaven. But first of all, he brings the bad news. For in verse 18, we see this parallel where he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. Righteousness, wrath, good, bad. The parallels and the contrasts stand out starkly in these verses. Paul is letting us know that before we can grasp the grace of God, we must first understand his wrath before we can understand Christ's death and his resurrection, we must first understand why men's sins made Christ's death necessary. 
before we begin to grasp how loving and merciful and kind and good God is, we must first see how rebellious and sinful and guilty and unbelieving mankind is. A disease has to be recognised and identified before seeking a cure means anything. And so it is that Paul reveals the bad news before he then goes on in the rest of Romans to spell out the good news. God's righteous judgment against sin is detailed before he graciously offers forgiveness of sin. For which of us would have any reason for wanting to be saved from sin if we were unaware that we were condemned as sinners? Which of us would want spiritual life unless we were made aware that we were spiritually dead? And so Paul begins first the bad news from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness from men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Some will say the wrath of God, the anger of God. Can, can God be angry? Can God be angry and still be God? Isn't isn't anger a sin? One of the failures of Christianity is the tendency to downplay any teaching about the wrath of God and judgment and condemnation upon all unforgiven sin. Rather, we, we're much more comfortable to play up the abundant life in Christ. We'll go overboard in talking about the blessings of salvation, peace with God, the victorious life, the benefits that flow from faith. But they're not the whole picture. And the other part of the equation is what Paul says here is God's judgment against sin and against those who remain in sin. It's uncomfortable, it's unfashionable, it's not politically correct, yet you can read it for yourself. The word of God declares the truth, that God's anger burns fiercely against all sin and against all sinners. But note with me the anger that we speak of here. It is of a divine quality. It is the wrath of God. It's not human anger. My anger, I've got anger, but it is so tainted with sin. It is corrupted by who I am in my sinful state. But God's anger, is always completely righteous. God doesn't lose his cool, doesn't lose his temper, doesn't blow his stack. His wrath is not unpredictable. God doesn't throw temper tantrums. He doesn't have irrational rage. His anger is the proper response that a holy God makes towards sin. And indeed, it would make a mockery of the words, if God is holy and it is not hostile towards evil for the very essence of holiness is that he cannot tolerate that which is unholy purity can't embrace impurity righteousness can't be joined to unrighteousness so when we talk about the wrath of god his anger don't measure god by human standards don't attribute our flawed anger to god and attribute and presume that he is just like us, only bigger. 
If you're unsure of the character of God, then examine Christ as he walked this earth. For Jesus told us, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. To know what God is like, look at Jesus. And learn that perfect wrath in God is as much a part of his eternal nature as is his love and his holiness, his goodness, his kindness and his mercy. But why is there the bad news of God's anger against mankind? What's the reason for his wrath? It's pretty plain. We don't have to guess. It's right there in Scripture. Verses 18 and 19, if you follow them on, draws us back to a fundamental fact that we often overlook. Read it with me. Paul says... What may be known about God is plain to them. That is plain to all men. What may be known to them is plain to them because God has made it known to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Did you grab that? God has given you. He's given to me. He's given all mankind, everyone who's ever lived. He has gifted to every one of us a revelation about himself through everything that's been created. All men know something of God. They all understand something of the reality and the truth of God. And so because of that knowledge, each person is responsible for a proper response to that revelation. And any wrong response is then without excuse. Don't underestimate the importance of this revelation that Paul speaks of in these verses. Don't underestimate the value of the gift that God has given to us here. For without God making himself known, we'd never know anything about God. By his grace, God has revealed something of his own nature and his own character to all people. And what's more, he says, he has made it plain to them. And I put it to you, if God chooses to make something plain, then nothing's going to stand in the road from making it plain to us. As it'll be like the nose in your face. We will be without excuse, as Paul puts it here. I'm just going to assume that you've all read or heard or know something about uh, a girl called Helen Keller. Helen Keller was a, a young girl and she had a disease that left her completely blind, completely without speech and completely deaf. And through the tireless efforts of her carer called Anne Sutherland, Helen finally learned to communicate through touch and she even later was able to speak. And when Anne, her carer, first tried to tell Helen about God, Helen's response was startling. She said that she already knew about God. She just didn't know his name. Paul says, what may be known about God is plain to all men, even to the blind, the deaf and the mute. And verse 20 tells us the contents of this, this universal revelation. What attributes of the invisible God are reflected in the created order that's around us? 
well, compared to the, to the number of facts about God in the written revelation of Scripture that we can read, the creation doesn't tell us very much indeed. But what it does tell us, it screams out in volume and it tells us two significant facts. And it doesn't matter whether you're a nuclear scientist staring down an electron microscope or you're a primitive tribesman staring up at the stars through the jungle canopy. Everything that has been made declares two things about God. Firstly, his eternal power. And secondly, his divine nature. That is, the world around us screams out that there is an awesome power beyond this world, beyond the creation. Something else made it, something else sustains it. And that the nature of this power is divine, that he is God. In short, all men know from what's around them that God exists and that God is supremely powerful. We could catalogue page after page of the creative wonders that testified to the existence of God and all of those things would echo what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So we go back to our question. Why does God's wrath fall upon man? Why? Because they reject this revelation of God that God himself has given. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Man willfully rejects God. That's why God's wrath is incurred. They know something of God through this general revelation plain to see in all of creation. But what do unbelieving men do with these facts? They reject the truth. They suppress it. They turn from the facts and embrace lies. Because the truth doesn't suit them. doesn't suit their bias away from God. It is straight out rebellion. It's the creature saying to the creator, push off, I don't want to know you. And God's wrath burns against this sin. The proper response to knowing even something of God is there in verse 21. But unbelieving people don't respond in this way. They don't glorify God as God. And they don't give thanks to him. These are the proper responses. So the issue isn't really, is there a God? The Bible tells us that everyone knows that there's a God, even if they deny his existence. They know. The real question is, how do you respond to what you know of God? Do you give him the glory? Do you give him thanks? They're the two questions. Scripture goes on later and it tells us that even the demons know that there is a God. They quake in their boots. They certainly, though, don't glorify him. They certainly don't give him thanks. 
but they know that there is a God. And men, in their efforts to avoid the consequences, the moral and the spiritual consequences of the truth of the existence of God, fail to respond to him in the way that they ought. And the results are tragic. For you see, man is not a spiritual moral vacuum. Rejecting this basic truth that God has given us means accepting a lie. Rejecting God's wisdom means embracing foolishness. Rejecting God's way of worship and responding to him means adopting false practices. To choose to do without God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe, that God exists and that he is divine. To reject the only reality which gives true meaning purpose and understanding to everything else. Refusing to recognise God and to have his truth guide our minds results in sinful man being doomed to futile quests for wisdom through flawed human thinking and that in turn leads to still greater disbelief and wickedness and it's a cycle of ever deepening darkness as they walk along with their backs turned against God and even as they do They claim that to walk away from God is in itself an act of wisdom. But God says they are fools. In verse 22, he makes it plain, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. Wise in rejecting God? Wise in suppressing the knowledge of the Almighty? Wise in exchanging truth for a lie? Wisdom of men? Really? Is that wisdom? As it says in the psalm, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And in that folly, man devised his own countless religious systems to replace the one truth of God and the worship of the one God. And it seems, at least to my mind, almost humorous that those who reject God still want something that looks like a God. Something that they can revere, something they can look up to, something to pin their hopes on, something to follow. But rather than the true God, man creates idols of his own making that are more to his liking. Where does that idolatry start? It starts when we exchange the truth of God for something other than what he really is. And that is the real heart of the issue. That is the proper focus of this passage. As I've talked this morning, some of you would say, come on, John, when are you going to get to the meaty parts? When are you going to get all those sort of, you know, those juicy bits? You know, all those bits there about, you know, shameful lusts. I've been dealing with it. I've been dealing with it. You see, this is the proper focus of the passage. People would read Romans 1 and they hone in those specific examples and on the more graphic illustrations. So much so that for for many Christians, this passage, particularly verses 26 and 27, become the go-to passage for speaking out against same-sex behaviours. 
But there is so much more going on here in this passage. So much more. Two weeks ago, a a friend of mine felt unwell. One of his symptoms was he had a headache. So he took a couple of Panadol and lay down for a few hours. Woke up, he was still feeling pretty off. So he wandered himself up to emergency. While he was there in emergency, he slipped into a coma. He'd suffered a massive brain bleed. He never woke up. We buried him this week. You see, Panadol was never going to be adequate for that headache. The headache was just a symptom of a far more severe underlying condition. And it's the same thing that's going on in this passage. If we only disapprove of of gay lifestyles or same-sex marriage and, and agitate for laws to outlaw it, if we do that yet fail to grapple with the far more crucial underlying issue and cause, if we fail to do that, then we miss the very centre of gravity in this passage, which is what Paul's on about, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who suppress the truth. They reject the basic revelation of God's existence and what he is like. And in that, their wickedness then multiplies. That wickedness will take many forms, including homosexuality. But if you look at this passage, it talks about more than that. It talks about idolatry. It talks about envy. It talks about gossip. It talks about those who become disobedient to parents. But we don't give that the same weight. The issue is all these things flow from a heart that have rejected God. Whatever the form, it results in suppressing the truth of God as revealed in the the creation. And it's that godlessness, that godlessness in their heart, which invokes divine wrath. That is what God's wrath is primarily revealed against. You see, my friend didn't die because he didn't take enough Panadol. He died because of an underlying brain hemorrhage. Restraining external behaviours, yes, it, it promotes morality and that's a good thing. But moral people who stay godless in their hearts remain under the wrath of God. There is a far more severe underlying condition in the core of their heart, in that they have rejected the truth of the God who has revealed himself in every ounce of the creation around them. And so it's challenging godless hearts that is the pursuit of salvation. And that is our true calling. That is why Paul can say, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness is by faith from first to last. And that is the way that counters the wrath of God that's being revealed against the ungodlessness. We've got to recognise the bad news in order to properly proclaim the good news. Let's pray. Our Father, we... uh, We don't want to be people who point the fingers at others and not realise that our own lives are out of step with you in so many ways. 
And our Father, we want to give you thanks that you have changed our hearts so that where once we rejected you and ignored you and turned our back on you and were rebellious against you, either, either passively or very openly, that our Lord God, in your grace, you revealed your righteousness to us in Jesus through the gospel. And so we've been saved from your wrath. Father, help us to, to really be aware of the issues that are in other people's lives and to be able to step in and help them with proper help that applies the balm of the gospel in the right way. Father, we pray that you'll help us also respond to you in the revelation you've given to us, not just in creation, but in your word and in the knowledge of Jesus by your spirit in a way which glorifies you as God in all things and gives thanks to you at all times. And Father, may we be salt and light in this world, help others do the same, so that they may escape that wrath that otherwise remains on them. For we pray this in your name. Amen.